Welcome to The Widow's Walk with Dr. Connie Mariano. If you've experienced the loss of someone close to you, Dr. Connie and her guests will share guidance, love, and support to help keep you moving. Now, here is Dr. Connie. Welcome to Widow's Walk. This is Dr. Connie Mariano, and I am your host of this new podcast on the Voice America Network. I dedicated this series to the widows out there who are grieving over the loss of their their husbands, but also for anybody who has had a significant loss of a loved one, a partner, another family member, a child, anyone who's suffering out there, this show is for you in a way to help lift you up and to recover. In a lot of ways, it's about Phoenix Rising, where you are devastated, and from there, can you grow and recover, but not only recover, but be a bigger and better person than what you are before your your death. So I want to welcome you back to this episode. I I, I love this show. I've gotten so many good re- reviews from it from other widows, but from other friends. I'm dedicating this show really to the one million new widows in America each each uh, year that they happen. One million new widows, and there are about 13 million widows in this country. There are three million widowers. And why is that? Well, men tend to die first. And if my late beloved husband, John Weaver, were here, he would say men die first because they can, just because he was a smart aleck about that. And his spirit lives strong within my life. I know that. It makes me laugh. Um, but you know, I, I was a suddenly widow July 1st of 2019. But there are many widows out there who are, were widows in waiting and took care of their husbands until they died. And are still taking care of their husbands, knowing that death is imminent. So I've been, again, touched by the emails and texts and calls from friends and family who've listened to the first show, and I encourage you to listen to this one and all the other shows that are going to follow. So for this show, I call it The Walk Begins, because I named it The Widow's Walk, because in New England, they had the architectural structure, the cupola, on the top of the roof, which is almost like a balcony. And the old story with The Widow's Walk was in the seafaring days of New England. The wives of the sea captains would go out on the roof and look out to the horizon for the ships to see if their husbands, the sea captains, were coming back. And a lot of times they wouldn't come back from sea, the sea. That's because they died. So that's just waiting, waiting for them to come back. So they call it the widow's walk. But the metaphor of that is it is a walk, figuratively. You walk. Once you're slammed down, when you lose your loved one, you got to pick yourself up and keep moving. And the task or the, the, the job or the mission of recovery is something you can't delegate. You can't speed it up. It's in your own time. We all grieve in our own way. But you can't hire somebody to grieve for you. You can't delegate and say, would you grieve for me or can I hire you? To-? No, you got to do it yourself. It's like going through labor. Only you can do the labor and you can reap the rewards of the labor after you recover from that and grow. So after you lose your husband, your partner, or your loved one, or your child, so what happens next? What happens to you? And I always condense the journey of widowhood as going from we to me. And so who's me now that I'm all by myself, right? Where does the title widow come from? Now, well, I researched a little bit. It's Indo-European, and there's a root of the word. Widow means a woman who's lost her husband to death. And so what do you call a man who loses his wife to death? Well, a widower. But I used to kid my little granddaughter. I told her what widows and widowers are. I said, you know, 
Addie one time asked me if I still had a husband. I said, no, Papa John passed away in 2019. So we call women who've lost their husbands widows. I said, do you know what they call men who lose their wives to death? And she goes, no. And I said, they call them bachelors. <laughs> so, so that's sort of a joke. I know. It's, it's not a very nice joke, but it's a funny joke anyway. But I mean no disrespect, obviously, because widowers also suffer too. But the title, official title, is widower. And I've been told that male or female can receive the state of widowhood. So you can have a widower and a widow, and you call them their widowhood. So... Going back to widows, what after you lose your husband to death, what do you do? How do you go on to live your life and your journey of recovery, regrowth, and rebirth in many cases? Well, you do it one step at a time. It's not a sprint. Some people, it's a marathon. But it's every step along the way, there's crying. There's more crying that you've ever cried in your life. Sometimes it's one day at a time. It's one hour at a time, one minute at a time. Depends on what kind of day it is. But you still go through it. I look back at that time in July of 2019, and it is an utter blur. Every woman remembers how they were told when their husband died. Every single woman remembers the moment she became a widow. That is indelibly imprinted in your mind, in your soul. But one of the things I tell people now after th over three and a half years, you do not let that define you. Don't let it define who you are. But I think back, what happens in the first 72 hours, obviously, when you you get the word. Well, it's putting the word out. The bad news begins, right? You tell family, you tell friends. When it comes to telling family and friends, if you ever wondered who your inner circle of people are, those are the first people you call when somebody has died, right? Anything good happens, you win the lottery. Anything bad happens, who are the five people you call first, right? Who's on your speed dial list? The other thing that comes to mind, death and taxes are are inevitable. So you make sure you get all the paperwork done. Um, I'm going to invite my estate attorney on the show in the future to talk about the paperwork and how you can prepare for death, like paying taxes. But what are all the legal proceedings? Make sure that you get a death certificate because you'll need that for Social Security and for benefits and everything else that comes into play. You get about 10, I, somebody told me to get 10 copies of your death certificate, you keep track of numbers. I had an assistant at the time, Sally, who was wonderful, who helped me keep track of numbers and uh, receipts and paperwork, and that really helped organize. You gotta be organized. You gotta use all your ability to know where things are placed and kept, and if you're smart before your husband dies, you know what the passwords are, you know where the money is, you know where the paperwork is, you know where he wanted to be buried. I mean, do you want him to be buried? Does he want to be cremated? Did he want a funeral? Did he want celebration of life? What, what did he want? And those are things to have. They're, in, they're uncomfortable things to have, discussions to have. What is your advance directive? Does he want to be resuscitated at the time of death? Those are big decisions to make. And as a physician, during my patient's annual exam, of which I spend 90 minutes with them, I go over the game plan. I said, so let me, let's talk about if you have an advance directive, who has your health care power of attorney, I put those in the record so we know. I keep file of their advance directive. And you, you play through different scenarios. There's, there's also a, a form called the five wishes that I distribute to my patients, which, which goes over scenario-based what they would like in the time of death or approaching death. So where you're doing all this stuff, this your to-do list, 
Meanwhile, you're trying to resume what a normal life would be. What does that look like? You're sleeping in the same bed you had with your husband. He's got his laundry. His shoes are there. His all his personal effects. You're in the same house. But you're alone. You sort of wonder, and I did at times, maybe this is really a bad dream. And he's going to come back and say, ha ha, it's just a joke. I just hid, you know, just to see. Surprise. This is not a bad. It is it's not a dream. It's a horrible dream, but it's reality. The sadness, it's surreal, and it's real, guys. It's a reality. And that's the thing that's so sad about it. But you got to move on, you know? He's never coming home again. You'll never hold him again. You'll never speak to him in this life again. So how do you get through this pain? So as a physician, I, I use my, my white coat and say, you should seek professional help with a therapist or a bereavement counselor, in some cases a psychiatrist, a psychologist, Don't try to gut this out on your own. If you're really suffering, and what's suffering like? We all handle things differently. If you can't carry on the everyday activities of living, if you find you're drinking more, you're asking your doctor for sleeping pills more, you need anti-anxiety pills more, if you're going on a shopping spree more, or if you're not eating, all those things come into play that it's impacting in a negative way your ability to carry on your life. I was very fortunate in my widow's journey to have someone to talk with me and help me emotionally navigate at least the first three to six years, I'm sorry, first three to six months after my husband died. And that person is with me today in, in, in my studio, and she's been amazing. She's known me and John for many years, has helped us through some rough times and to help us grow as a couple and a very happily married couple. And I want to introduce my friend and my confidant and my widow guide, and that's Edie Yoder. And I met Edie, oh my goodness, over 10 years ago when John and I came to her as we were preparing to get married. Because I always think we, if it's a second marriage or third marriage or whatever, you bring in baggage into a wedding, uh, into a marriage. It may be Louis Vuitton, but it's still baggage, guys. So you've got to work that out and make sure you, you've, you're openly communicative. And she was wonderful, no nonsense. I've sent many patients to her. I've sent many widows to her. She helped me in my first three to six months of losing John, and beauty was she knew him and his background. So she has helped me so much, and I've sent many patients and friends to her too. Um, Edie is a licensed clinical social worker. She has a master's degree in therapy. Uh, she's been in practice, my goodness, over 40 years. Yes. Over 40 mm-hmm. years here. Um, she had private practice here in town, offering psychotherapy services, specializing in trauma recovery mood disorders, relationship counseling, grief, and loss. Um, Her information, she's on Missouri Avenue in Phoenix. Her phone number, she even puts her cell phone number there. It's available online if you need, or if you can email us, we'll give you that information. But welcome, Edie. Thank you for coming to Widow's Walk. Thank you for inviting me here. I'm very glad to be here. You know, how did you get into the work of therapy? Well, I started out thinking I was going to be a teacher and in a lot of ways, you are. <laughs> and I am. But somewhere in there, uh, I was um, essentially putting my first husband through a master's program. And they had no, everybody was doing that at the University of Michigan. And so um, there was no jobs. And so we became live-in house parents for juvenile delinquent boys. And I got a lot of feedback at that time that I was very good at what I was doing. Uh, it was an exhausting, one of those jobs that you learn a lot through, but you hope to never do again in your lifetime. <laughs> but out of that, I decided to get my master's in social work because I realized I really loved 
working with people and doing therapy. And then you came out here 40 years ago, or how many years ago did you wind up in Phoenix? Well, we moved here in 1982 um, with my um, second husband, and we've been living here ever since, um, and it's been wonderful. And then you have had so many patients over the years. How do your patients find you? Well, they um, they find me by word of mouth. Uh, I'm, on a, I'm a provider for some insurance companies, and so they look on their list there. Because I've been uh, in private practice since 1992, I get a lot of referrals who refer other people who know other people. And so there's a lot of people who know people who hear about me. I also periodically have people come back through the years. They'll come and work on something, then go on their way, and then something else come, happens and they return. Um, so I really love helping people put the pieces together um, to gain freedom and happiness. What are the most challenging patients for you to treat, the hardest ones? Well, I think when it comes to grief, um, it's the whole dilemma of how do I manage these intense feelings? Because either they t people tend to impulsively behave, make decisions that need to wait, um, or sometimes they get totally stuck. And often the ones who are really stuck are there because Perhaps the person who died, they have ambivalent feelings about. Perhaps there were significant difficulties in the relationship. And so they have a lot of mixed feelings of, well, I'm glad he's gone, I can't stand that he's gone. And they feel guilty for, an, any, for feeling relief that this is over with. And so how to come to terms with someone you may feel ambivalently about is really a struggle because on one hand, you've loved him and want to be with him. On the other hand, sometimes you couldn't stand him. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes, even there's significant enough trauma times, I've known they said, well, I wished him dead, and now he is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, well, your wishes won't make anyone dead. And it's normal when you're struggling to say, well, if they weren't here, it would be easier. And so how to not feel what I call false guilt, that you feel responsible for things that you have no control over, and that you feel re guilty for your feelings. Feelings simply are. There's no shoulds to feelings but to accept and explore and walk your way through them, not avoiding them, uh, but learning from them and growing yourself in that process. So you work with them. You know, and my case perhaps is unusual because I lost him suddenly, and one of my dear friends told me, you know, you grieve because not only did you love him, but you were in love with him. You were actively in love with him when he died, and you didn't want him to die. It isn't like somebody who you had a very contentious relationship over the years and it's almost and I've had widows who tell me I, I hate to say this but I, I'm glad he's dead I'm glad he's dead but then you're right they, they feel guilty that they even have to say that but so how do you work through that just taking time to talk to them to about talk it? with them help them to talk uh, to let go of what I call false guilt of things they, they couldn't control anyway to just be accepting that their body is telling them something very important there are no shoulds to feelings yeah. they simply are we are held accountable for our behavior, not our feelings. And it takes time to understand that, to and work with that. Absolutely, and to work your way through that. Also, I think there's another um, process that I see a lot is when a spouse is dying. And this can go on for a long time. And what we call anticipatory grieving. Because they're not gone yet, but they're going to be gone. And frequently, there's frequent emergencies, this happens, that happens. 
And sometimes that is also totally exhausting because there's been so many emergencies, so many things go wrong, and you feel like he's he's died a number of times, although he hasn't. Mm -hmm. And the anticipatory grieving is part of that process, and often when there is a prolonged illness Mm -hmm. where someone eventually dies, a lot of the grieving happens before their actual death. And in that case, often soon or after the death, they may be more ready to be involved in a new relationship because they have done so much grieving before the death. And there's often a lot of guilt about that. Plus, people can judge others about that. How could you possibly be involved with someone Mm -hmm. after he's only been dead for so long Mm -hmm. when actually he's been dying for a long time? And I think the other piece that's so hard for widows is how do you deal with the judgments of other people who think they know about what you should be feeling and what you should be doing and what death is like? And to be able to listen and just say, well, that's their, their issue, it's not mine. And how do you separate, what, separate out what's true for you and to let go and become more immune to the judgments of other people who really have no idea what this is about? I have one of my widow friends who was married over 30 years, and she took care of her husband's who thick and thin, and he was dying over six years of dementia and his it just she took care of him complete until he died so she had the six years of grieving and then th- about three months after he passed she met somebody who moved in and I think she lost half their friends who were appalled that how could you do this and I, I you know there's no timetable I mean do you grieve for a year you grieve for two years do you I mean, uh, people try to think, well, that's inappropriate. Well, how is that inappropriate? She grieved all those years. You know, um, one of my patients was a widower. His wife was a patient of mine, and she died of, of uh, horrible dementia, Parkinson's. And he remarried within eight months of her death. He met his wife online. And delightful lady. I had dinner with him the other night, just a sweet couple. But he's the happiest I've ever seen him. And he said, she would, my late wife wouldn't have went that would have wanted it. And some of them hesitate. And I said, well, you're not cheating on your late spouse, you know. You know, they're, they're, they're in heaven. They're where they are. And, you know, they would want you to be joyful. I think a lot of that is perhaps our guilt, thinking, well, how long do I suffer? You know, how long, you know, when do you move on? And what does that look like? I mean, it is really different for everyone. The circumstances of how the death came up about how they felt about the person at the time of death and prior to that. And I often think of, because some people are so uh, either judging them because they, they're moving on too quickly, or aren't you done yet? You know, this mm-hmm. should be done. And everybody has their own timetable. One of the things I think about when I'm thinking about the grieving process is often if it's a very devastating death and sudden death, sometimes I think, and this is, this is not a hard fact, but I often think about the five-year mark when there's been great long love and sudden death and it's shocking to the entire system. What I often see with my clients is about the five-year mark, they begin to make some kind of turn that, and it can certainly be before that, after that. Um, but I kind of use that as a marker, where are you at in the grieving process? And I also think like the death of a child is just beyond the pale. I'm still not quite certain how people deal with that because it is so devastating. Um, 
And I've had those situations, but I also use the five-year mark as kind of, okay, where am I at? Mm -hmm. And often at that time, there's some kind of shift or movement that helps them to move along the path. I think the hardest people to help really are those who've lost a child, a young child. What What do you do? What do you do to help them work through that? You listen a lot. Um, you cry with them, you validate their feelings, you help them to stay on the path of moving along, even as their grief is devastating beyond belief. Mm-hmm. You acknowledge that and you let them cry. That's yeah. all they can do. You, you know, I, I'm there to bear witness mm-hmm. to their grief and to be with them. And they need an ear. They need someone to be there without judgment uh, and without telling them what to do. Right. You need to do this. You, and, you know, somebody had told me, one of the widows had said, the the worst thing that somebody could tell her is about her late husband, well, he's in a better place. And she's like, no, he's not. He'd be in a better place if he were here in the bedroom, right? Um, but really for a parent, like if you were meeting somebody who lost a child, what is an appropriate thing to say to them? That you knew they lost their child. Because I am so very sorry, you know, yeah. and, and you let them talk. Yeah, you you bear witness to bear their... witness them answer any questions they have, and I view myself as an accepting, healing presence that is simply with them on their journey. Mm-hmm. That is non-judgment. There's no judgments. There's no directions. You should do this or that. I'm there mm-hmm. to notice if things seem to be totally out of whack. Like if they're in bed 24 hours a day mm-hmm. and can only come to the appointment, you know, I'll refer them appropriately for additional help. And including sometimes medication, but I'm just there to be to be with them and to bear witness to their grief, and to know that they are heard and that they are okay no matter what's going on. Because you know, a lot of times it's so uncomfortable. People don't like to talk about death. They sort of avoid you, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of my 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 uh, late husband's brother-in-law, who lost his wife, John's sister, told me. When John had died, he says, you know, be prepared to lose half your married friends because they they won't stick around because, you know, their connection was with my late husband. But I've been very impressed. A lot of his friends have stayed dear friends and good friends. Um, And that's a testament to our friendship with them. And it wasn't isolating. But, you know, you know, I I have dear friends who check on widows. I'm just making sure you're okay. I'm reaching out there. You're doing all right. And it means so much. And I have another thing to add to that. My husband, I have several. Uh, widow friends who lost their husbands and for those of you who aren't widowed to be support supportive and to be there and not to stop friendships just because you've lost part of the couple because they really need support and for the widows for them to do their part in reaching out as well because the, the, the single widowed friends we have it's reciprocal we reach out to them they reach out to us now in the first months you know it's really on me to reach out Mm -hmm. but eventually when it's reciprocal to not run away from couple relationships Mm -hmm. you just reach out just keep that going yeah we're going to keep this going in a few minutes we we're going to pause for a quick break uh with our wonderful guest Edie yoder and we'll do a little break here on widow's walk and come on back for more more words of comfort and guidance from Edie yoder and dr connie on widow's walk stay tuned Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? 
Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Dr. Connie Mariano is a groundbreaker. She was the White House physician to three presidents, toured the world on Air Force One, and has had countless amazing experiences. The one thing that life didn't prepare her for was becoming a widow. After losing her beloved husband, John, in a tragic accident, Dr. Connie joined the one million women who were widowed in the United States each year. While her journey as a widow has been one of intense grief and sorrow, it has also been one of extraordinary growth and rebirth. Now, Dr. Connie is sharing what she's learned, joined by her knowledgeable guests to help anyone struggling with this deeply personal and often lonely journey of their own. Tune into The Widow's Walk, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Welcome back to The Widow's Walk. Remember to check out the show page on the Voice America website for more episodes. Now, back to Dr. Connie. Welcome back to Widow's Walk, and we are doing our first baby steps after someone loses someone they deeply love. What happens next? So I have in studio a dear friend of mine and a very amazing, talented healer, therapist, Edie Yoder here in Phoenix, Arizona, who has helped so many widows, including myself in that journey. And We're talking about the struggles of widows, but also of widowers and people who have lost their child to death. And what do you do? And, you know, Edie was exploring just the difficulty to fighting guilt. Guilt has been the big issue, hasn't it? It has for many of them. Uh, There's a lot of, well, if only I'd done this, or I should have known that, or I had this uneasy feeling, why didn't I, whatever. And it is pervasive with many, many... um, deaths where their surviving spouse or parent feels like, well, if they should, if they only they had done this, it would be different. And one of the things I point out to them is if only these are fantasies, you know, well, if I'd done this earlier in my life, then, well, it might be different, but there's no guarantee it would be any better. Right. There right. just isn't because the fantasy world that somehow I could bring this person back to life and the, the blame that you can pal on yourself for not doing something or other. It is incredibly difficult. And sometimes there are things, you know, it's like if we could look ahead or um, redo life, things might be different. Well, we don't know what they would be. And we can't do it anyway. We can't rewind it. I mean, we say, if only I had done this, you can't, it's done. Mm-hmm. So how do we deal with it? How, and you talked about witness, bear witness to mm-hmm. their pain, letting them talk. Because some people avoid it. They don't want to go, oh, I'm not, I don't want to make you cry, so I'm not going to talk about it. But I'm just going to change the subject. And it's like, no, let, do you, would, would, let, would you like to talk about the one you love? Let's do that. Yeah, and so I invite them to explore it more deeply. What do they believe would have happened if they had changed? Yeah. You know, what is reality about this? If onlys and what ifs are dead ends. Yeah. Because there's no way to go down that path. Uh, because there's no guarantees about that. And I think part of it is we're so death-phobic in our culture. And because of all the modern miracle medicine, we somehow believe we're going to live forever. Mm -hmm. But as I'm fond of saying, none of us are getting out of here alive. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And so we somehow believe there's some magical thing to everything. Right. And that's not true. Things go wrong. Uh, 
we in general believe we have more control over things than we actually do. Uh, we're very much there in, in the United States. You know, somehow we, we're into we have all this control. No, we don't. We have very little control. Yeah. And accepting that and being willing to explore more deeply the fantasies of what they think should have happened and did not. And letting them play that out and talk that out and challenging um, their beliefs and really talking about, you know, at some point, you know, how, as we've explored and worked, like, is how is guilt serving you? Because sometimes there's, if I can feel guilty enough, somehow maybe I'll make something different. Right. I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price. My family will be protected if I can be the one suffering. Yes. Be flagellated with Yes. But it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. It makes you miserable. Uh You have to wonder if that person who died really loved me, would they want me to be feeling guilty and unhappy? And a lot of times you look at your faith base. What is your faith if you believe there's life after death and the soul is eternal and your loved ones never really go away? That has given me great comfort believing that, Um, knowing that John is at peace and he's sending love and I will, I will be with him and all my loved ones when my that life is over. We do know that spiritual beliefs frequently are very helpful in dealing with death. We know that people who deeply believe they see, will see their loved one again seem to aid in their recovery. However, some people don't believe mm-hmm. and that's okay too. Yeah, absolutely. Th- there are many routes to re- reaching a sense of peace and serenity about death because death is inevitable. Yeah, it's one of the things that you accept and ultimately. You brought out a, an, an amazing, well-timed article today out of Psychology Today. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? I would uh, be glad to do that. I just happened out this, this morning, and so I sent it on to Connie. And it's talking about the neural, how the brain has to redraw its neural map. That when you're attached to somebody, there's all kinds of automatic behaviors and expectations and how you see and experience the world, they're automatic. And you don't even think about them. But when there's a death, suddenly none of those things are there. And so there's all these triggers that happen. Well, this time he comes home, or this time this happens. Or we're going to do this in the future, and there's all these plans, which we'll talk about in a little bit too, about the loss of dreams that you shared with someone. But it takes time for your brain to redraw that neural map of expectation and to grieve the loss of that that expectation is no longer there and to reorient, really to reorient to a new reality because there's constant triggers that say, oh, this is when this happens. And we think about like birthdays and anniversaries, but on a daily basis, a thousand times a day, sure, there's all sure. these triggers that say, oh, this is what happened. And it takes time for the brain to redraw that map. And that's a definite part of the grieving process. And the longer time you've spent with someone, the more you're connected, the more those triggers are. And to give yourself the time for your brain to redraw the map and to go through the grieving process of sadness and, and anger and pain and regrets and love and to move in and out of acceptance of what has happened takes a long time for your brain to, to reorient to what the new reality is. And that takes a while, and it's okay. Yeah. There's no timetable, is there? No, there isn't. You check him after five years. I, I did, did an unofficial poll of my widow friends, and they say usually about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And you start, my younger widows start thinking of dating. It varies. Some of them, 
within a year meet somebody. Mm. You know, I find it interesting. Somebody quoted that what percentage of widows remarry? It's only 16%, very small number. The younger widows remarry more quickly because if they're raising children, they don't want to be alone. The older widows, we have a saying in widowhood, I don't want to be a nurse, I don't want to be a purse. <laughs> That's one of the things they say. But I, I do have several widows in their 80s who have found somebody. My oldest remarried widow is 87, and her husband's 93. And they got married three years ago. He was 90 when they got married. And they're the happiest, youngest couple I know. It's just, they're such a delight. I'm going to bring them on the show later this year when we talk about, about it's never too late. But can you address also the widows out there who are widows in waiting? They either married husbands who are a lot older or sicker, and they know as they take care of their husbands who are declining that they will be their, their widow. How do you prepare for that if you do it at all? Well, one of the ways you prepare, number one, is to make sure you get your affairs in order and you know what's going on. You, you really look at, okay, we're going to talk about this. I need to know where this is at. Mm-hmm. Make sure you know where your affairs are at. And that's easier if someone's willing to talk to you. I have one friend whose husband was dying, and he would not talk about his death. He would not, 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 not. It was such a lonely journey for her. Yeah. There were some things he took care of, but not be able to talk about and prepare the very practical realities of what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And actually, it is helpful to know the nuts and bolts of, okay, this is what our financial situation, this is what you do. So to put in place plans, because it's a concrete thing that you can do to help you prepare in the anticipatory grieving process, mm-hmm. to prepare for that. And of course, when it happens, it's still not quite like it was even preparing for it. Mm-hmm. But there are very practical things you can do to help make that time when you're just kind of, your mind's boggled and it's hard to think clearly, that you have plans in place that you can follow sort of like rote to do that. The other thing is to deal with, because sometimes for anticipatory grieving, it seems like they will never die. Sometimes they're exhausted with that process of getting there. And so to be patient and compassionate and to find someone who's safe to talk to about all these thoughts and feelings and sometimes wishing he were dead, then being afraid he's going to die, feeling guilty because you're wishing he would. Um, you know, it's, it's easy sometimes to get into magical thinking. <laughs> if I think about it, it's going to happen, so I right. better not. Right. Or if I don't think about it, it won't happen. Both magical thinking. Right, correct. Uh, so to, to do that. I think also the a whole aspect of anticipatory grieving is sometimes it's hard to make plans because you don't know what's going to be. Mm-hmm. So you can make plans for trips or you can do whatever, but there's no guarantee it's going to happen, which then also leads into the topic of grieving is not just about your immediate loss, but it's the loss of the dreams you had, the plans you had. Um, and especially when a death is sudden and it's unanticipated and the person's younger and they weren't even thinking about yeah, this. Yeah, we were supposed to grow old together. Yes. What happened? Yeah. yeah. And so to, because it's also not just grieving the loss of the person, but also the loss of the dreams and the plans yeah. and all the things you had planned and were in place and how you saw your future suddenly shot to hell. And that's very shocking. And to give yourself time to grieve what could have been as well as grieving the loss of what you had. That's the tough part is 
you know, just getting through everyday times. I mean, what are the things do you encourage uh, friends and, you know, do you support groups? What do, you, do a lot of your widows have support groups or they come see you or they have close friends? How do, what other things can you do to, well, to navigate this? Well, certainly have close friends, sometimes grief groups, especially if they're targeted, especially for widows or widowers, are very helpful. To get into daily routines, part of resetting the neural brain to the new realities is having daily rituals, things that you do that you get things in place. And it's also very calming to the brain to have predictability Mm -hmm. and consistency. Mm -hmm. It helps the brain settle down because everything has just been thrown upside down. Mm -hmm. And it gives your brain time to settle down. So daily rituals of health or well-being and knowing some days you're not going to do anything and that's okay. But other days you're going to plod your way through the day and doing these things keeps you on target. And also to, to have times of getting together with other people, inviting them to your house as soon as you can, as it works, and encourage reciprocating their overtures. And to have rituals that help you to get through the day when you don't know what else to do. Yeah, yeah. How do you get through all that? At what point do you, if you're with a client, do you say you really... Ought to see a psychiatrist with this? Uh, if they can't seem to move out of an intense phase of something, or they're becoming more dysfunctional, they, they don't do the, the activities of daily living, ADLs we call mm-hmm. them. You know, that they're not bathing, they're just staying in bed all the time. They're not, they're breaking appointments with friends on a regular basis, not just on bad days, but doing that. And uh, looking for signs like I would with anyone that the depression is deep mm-hmm. or they're thinking too much about death themselves um, or are they having any suicidal thoughts and feelings because some of them will say I just want to be with him right I don't want to be here anymore right and that can be a very natural reaction sure. gauging okay where are they at in this is this kind of a natural normal reaction with people that I that I'm really deeply concerned about I always want I have an emergency contact mm-hmm. that I call if I'm concerned about anything if I feel they're seriously suicidal, I check about weapons, I, mm-hmm. all of those mm-hmm. things to make sure they're safe. Are they hoarding pills, you know, so they can do an overdose? So I check out the, the regular things that I do with anyone that I'm concerned about, that they're not moving along here. They're becoming dysfunctional. That's a good way to do it. You just check it because, we'll, you know, I send to my psychiatrist friend somebody who just, I can't go along. My whole life has stopped. I can't, I can't function. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been very blessed to still have a practice that keeps me busy, you know, but it gets to a point where am I being distracted so I can't fully grieve because after John died, what what did we get? We got the pandemic and that really forced me to stay home and, and fully face the fact that I was in a new place, a new place to live and he wasn't ever coming back. And then to be alone and really feel that aloneness and not think someone's going to come home. He's not going to ever be home. And and sort of embrace that and say, okay, you know, at what point do you know? Somebody once told me that you never really get over it. You just get stronger. You get you get stronger. You get a little bit tougher there. Can you be? Can we become better people after this? Do you see that happening? Absolutely. People come as they work their way through, and walk their way through. Uh, and it's it's really important as to be able to feel what's going on. For some people, journaling is very helpful, just to 
write down or type down what they're thinking and feeling. And it's a way to get it out of their heads because you can just ruminate and go round and round and round and round. And when that becomes debilitating, then medication can help as far as getting off the, the track that goes round and round and round. And to be able to move through the process because there's, you know, there's denial, bargaining, well, maybe if I'd done this, great sadness and grief. The other thing that I notice sometimes with, with widowed and with people who have experienced a death in the family is that sometimes the depression can actually prevent the grieving process from going forward because the depression is dragging them down. That's more than it. So if they go on a temporary course of medication and are able to actually not have the clinical depression, they can actually move forward in the grieving process. Also, grieving is not a straight line. You know, sometimes you think, oh, this is doing fine, it's a good day, and suddenly you're bursting into tears. Right, right. Uh, and it seems to come out of nowhere. Um, or it can be a bad day, and then suddenly it's okay. There's no straight line with this, and it just takes time. And for everybody, it is somewhat different, which is why it's so important to be accepting of whatever is going on and rather than trying to avoid the feelings, to write them out, to go deeper into them, and in many ways to make friends with your feelings. As painful as it is, is to know, I wouldn't be feeling this if I hadn't loved him. Yeah. It's the price you pay for loving it's somebody. It's the price. That's what I say. Yeah. Grieving is the price you pay for loving. Yeah. And without love, what is life worth? I mean, if you have no one you love in your life. What kind of life is that? What, there is no life. There is no life. So, you know, the death is... And grief is the price you pay for living and loving. My my friends in the spiritual world, they define life as love in full expression, L-I-F-E, uh-huh. love in full expression. And I love that way that they term that. You know, I, I, I look at my journey and I look at other widows. There are some, so many common things that we share about little triggers that come up that you can be doing, as you mentioned, perfectly fine. And a song on the radio comes up and... And it's all of a sudden the tears start going, and then you're okay. You're okay. And it comes to a point in my recovery that the sense of loss is less, that I know that I, I've been blessed in so many ways and that, that I need to move on in my life. You know? And moving forward doesn't mean I push him away. And actually what's, the dreams, I call them kisses from heaven that John has sent, have been they're interesting ones that I dreamt about after he died. One of the first dreams was we were flying our plane, and but this time I was in the cockpit in his seat in the pilot seat, and he was sitting beside me, and we were taxiing on the runway. And I had the I was working the pedals that where you taxi, where you turn the plane. And he looks at me with those beautiful blue eyes, and he points at me. He says, listen, if anything goes rough and things get tough, you keep flying the plane. And I woke up, and it was so real. I thought that must have been a visitation. I think the message was, no matter what happens, you keep practicing medicine. You keep going to work, keep taking care of your patients because I want you to do it. The last two messages I got from him that I believe he sent were, your heart is big enough to love another, which means move on. And the other is, you don't need to push me away to move forward. And to me, that was, made. if I made it up, great, whatever it was, that gave me some comfort to know it's time to move on in your life, right? That is very comforting. However, I also have uh, friends and, and clients who want to hear from the, the person who's departed, 
and they don't have dreams about yeah. him. And there are no messages come from somewhere, and they're like, did I do something wrong? Right. Did, did, <laughs> He's did he blocked. Do, he, is he blocked? What's going on here? And, and help them just to normalize everything that's yeah. happening. Yeah. The experience is different for everyone. Yeah, not everybody gets those messages. Yeah. Not everybody gets it. Yeah. You know, to find that peace and go, so, and you go to me. Now, what's the new me like? What What do I have now? What's going on with me? And, and you know, how do you, I move forward? And it isn't being selfish. It's self-love. That's why you get therapy. It's really, you know, it's why you do the rituals. I mean, he's moved on, but it's really for the people there. I went to somebody's memorial service on, on um, Saturday. There were 300 people there. And I had an amazing life. But to see his children get up and speak to him about him in eulogy and have everybody gathered in memory. And it's the rituals we have that we, we get together with friends. That's why I like to get together with fr- family often now because I say, I don't want to have to see you at a funeral. Yes. You know, and it looks at your bigger picture of, of life and grief. And the most valuable thing we have left is time. And how do you spend that time? Right. So what do you, what final advice do you give to widows out there who are still struggling with, or even anybody who's lost a loved one, a child, a partner, a best friend, um, or somebody who's just the closest partner in their life? How do you move on? Well, get help. Number one, um, see what, Grief groups are available. If that doesn't seem to be doing it, check out what therapists are available. If you refer to someone and it doesn't feel right, find someone else. But you really need objective people who have no investment in where you're at and no judgments about that to listen and to be there for you. Uh, I was also thinking about one more feeling that I think is often very difficult is the anger that many people feel at their loved one dying. And to and to be able to deal with and know that that's part of grief too. Anger is a part of grief. Why did they have to leave me? Or in some cases, why did they leave like this? I'm a, I'm a mess. Um, or just anger that they left at all. Or maybe they did something stupid. How could you do that? You knew I loved you. Why did you do that? But to move, that's part of the grieving process of just moving on another step. That's, those are words of wisdom, truly, as there's a lot of emotions to come of loss. And one of the things I would cry out and my sorrow is I I just miss you I just really miss you right and I think once you know that they're always in your heart so you know they're here they're just in a different way and then what gives me growth is helping other widows when you start reaching out because it widowhood knows no boundaries in terms of socioeconomic or you know we all suffer and and that combined unites us as I call them widow sisters or anybody who's had tremendous loss if you if you set up a foundation or if you, you you write a book or do as in my case a podcast and a book but some way you can help others out there you relive your journey but you can you know some gain from my pain perhaps that yeah. you can connect with somebody to help them and there are online groups and i since the pandemic people have really found online groups is really helpful mm-hmm. because you don't have to take the risk of going to a group but you can kind of stick your toes in the water and see how this feels mm-hmm. to be able to talk to other people who know what it's like and that you can share important things with that many people will not understand. Yeah. And then others who've lost them know what it feels like. It's, again, the club that nobody wanted to join, but here we are. But uh-huh. So our time's almost up. I, Edie, thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. You've, you've helped me, but I know through this podcast you're helping others, and I, my hope is that they'll 
they'll seek you out or seek out other therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists to, to help them in that journey and in their widow's walk. So my love and, and gratitude to all of you out there for listening in. And my hope is that you honor your love with joy and gratitude that you had that love and that you move forward in your journey to be you and to embrace that. So with that, I sign off here on Widow's Walk and have a wonderful month. We'll talk to you next month. Take care and God bless. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Widow's Walk with Dr. Connie Mariano. We hope you've gained some peace and maybe even a glimmer of hope as you continue to move forward in your life. Until we talk again, have a beautiful day.